0: This is C. Gabriel with Mythic Deviant and Part 2 of The Shapeshifter. The Shapeshifter for Growth and Development. Last time we looked at how the Shapeshifter archetype could be used for personal gain. This is about fulfilling our most base needs. But this time, we're on to using the Shapeshifter for ourselves and others. Usually, we hope that that change will be positive, but really, no one ever knows. More on that later, with The End Justifies the Means. For now, the shapeshifter, while taking a bit of a beating by our current indoctrinators, is really about life, change, and growth at its core. Shapeshifting is eluding death. Death of the heart, death of the mind, death of the soul, or death of the body. That said, let's launch into a story, because it's interesting, at least to me. Just to invert things, I'm starting with (laughs) a second-person shapeshifter. This is a Celtic story about a character called Math. Yes, that is a funny name. Math is the god of increasing wealth, so maybe it's an appropriate name. Or, well, growth and development. Math -Math Thab-Methalen was vital for humanity. He assured our survival and physical fulfillment. He also protects us. But like so many things, there is a catch. Math must, when not in active duty, continually rest his feet on the lap of a virgin in order to exist in our world. Not a bad life, though, in my estimation, virginity is overrated when physical. I say that as a person who embodies the virgin archetype. You know us, the people who weep when someone walks on new snow. Anyway, back to the story. Math has a palace in Gwyned. It is a lovely palace, and it houses his extended family, most of whom are gods. I use that as a gender-free word. Math's virgin Ottoman Gwyn is a lovely girl. And when his nephews, Gilveithwy and Gwydion, come to live with him, Gilveithwy agrees. He falls madly in love with the young lady. He must have her. So they devise a plan to get Math out of the house. The young men convince Math that they must go to another kingdom in order to procure a new, tasty, sweet animal, the pig. The pig happens to be sacred to the Vikings, so... They disguise themselves as bards and play beautiful music for King Pryderi, knowing he cannot refuse their sow request when they are finished. But he does, even though it is considered incredibly rude. He explains to them that he has sworn an oath not to gift or sell the pigs. Gwydion, being our magician of the brothers and a trickster, explains that they want neither the gift nor to purchase the pigs. With that, he conjures nine, again a sacred number for the Vikings, black stallions, and insists that he would like to trade for them because trading is not part of the oath. King Praderi, after checking with his elders, agrees, and Gilvaithwae and Gwydion head home, but as soon as they're gone, the stallions disappear as well. And Pryderi knows that he has been had, He launches an attack against them. Much fighting ensues, but the young men eventually make it back home to Uncle Math and tell him they have been unjustly followed and attacked. Math, in his sacred duty as protector, leaves his home, and with his troops, combats Prydary. Gilvathway and Gwydion, thrilled that Math is distracted, head home. There Gilvathway approaches Gwyn and tries unsuccessfully to woo her. She is dedicated to her position with Math. Eventually, as Gwydion stands guard, Gilvaithway rapes her. The war wages on until Pryderi, an apt leader, insists that his men must return home safely. He suggests a one-on-one combat with the opposition under Math's leadership. Gwydion, having returned to the battlefield with his now very shamed brother, agrees to fight. He agrees because he's the magician. He casts illusions which Pryderi attempts to fight, and eventually, Gwydion wins unfairly. When they get home, there's a great victory celebration, and Math rewards them, telling them how incredibly proud he is. Until, that is, he goes to put his feet on Gwyn and discovers that she is no longer the virgin he requires. He asks her about this, and feeling ashamed, she tells him. Math is somewhat livid at this point. He calls his nephews in his quarters and confronts them. Gilvaithway admits his transgression, and with that Math transforms Gwydion into a stag and Gilvaithway into a hind and sends them into the forest. A year later they return with their son, who Math turns back into a human. He then changes the two young men into a boar and a sow. Again they leave for a year and reproduce. When they return with their son Math turns him into a human, and the two of them into wolves, this time switching up the gender so that they can each learn what it's like to be male and female, to be predator and prey. A year later, they return with their son, and Math turns them all back into humans. As usual, there's more to the story. But the point here is, Math has used shape-shifting to turn his nephews into animals to teach them two important lessons, the difference between being human and being another type of animal. And teaching them the experience of an animalistic form of each gender. He's teaching them compassion and respect for genders. This is a second-person use of shapeshifting for growth and development. But we can also use it in the first person, although that does bring up a complication in the event of the shapeshifter. Shapeshifters are generally gods and magicians, so there's something magical about the shapeshifter to begin with. So it really calls the question, Do gods learn? There's a good argument for no. If immortals learned, then they would all be completely enlightened in a very few human lifetimes, and there would be no more stories. Narratives depend on conflict, which, in turn, depends on people behaving in ways that are ignorant. If all the gods knew everything, and did their own personal work to understand who they were in the larger picture of their lives— they would be capable of producing a world without conflict, and we would have no more stories. On the other hand, they could choose to reach this place within themselves, but then continue to behave in ways that play out conflict, not because they necessarily internally feel conflict, but because it's fun, and it teaches us, and maybe they want to teach us. So for this story, I'm going with that theory. We're returning to the Ramayana, Last time I mentioned how, in this story, Rama marries Sita, and the two of them take off into the forest with Rama's brother, Lakshama. The two gentlemen are out when they encounter a woman who tries to seduce each of them. When she fails, she runs back to her brother, Ravana, who is profoundly powerful in both worldly and spiritual ways. She convinces him that he must have Sita, Rama's wife. Ravana turns himself into a deer and kidnaps Sita. He takes her back to his palace across the ocean. As they fly through the air, she throws off a trail of jewelry for her husband and brother-in-law to follow, sure that they will rescue her. Apparently, she wears a great deal of jewelry because she makes it a really long way. So that's about as much as I mentioned last time, but I'm now adding that Rama is not human. There's a triumvirate of male Hindu gods, Brahma, the god of creation. Shiva, the god of destruction, and Vishnu, the god of eternity. In his job of preserving the continuity of life, Vishnu periodically incarnates as a physical being in order to teach, learn, and repair. And this is how we get Rama. So Rama is not a normal guy. He's the god of eternity, incarnated into physical form in order to ensure the preservation of life and he's come to experience an understanding of trust, betrayal, and personal values in order to teach humanity through his stories and ensure the continuity of life in general. Back to the story. Bearing in mind that I'm not telling the whole thing, just illustrating the archetype for now. Anyway, Rama and his brother, Lakshmana, return to their place in the woods and find that Sita is gone, even though the magical protective barrier is still up. They call for her, they look for her, and eventually they find some of her jewelry. So they go traipsing off through the woods in search of her. Meanwhile, the monkey princes are hosting a civil war. Hanuman, the commander of one of the monkey armies, is sent to investigate Rama and Lakshmana as they stumble near the battlefield. Meanwhile, the monkey princes are hosting a civil war. Hanuman, the leader of one of the monkey armies, is sent to investigate Rama and Lakshmana as they stumble near the battlefield. Just as Rama is secretly an avatar of Vishnu, Hanuman is often thought to be secretly an avatar of Shiva, the god of destruction. In any event, they recognize each other's souls immediately and Hanuman drops to his knees in praise of Rama The story gets really complex here, as they encounter issues over the monkey war and random demons, but eventually Hanuman goes off in search of Sita and finds her at Ravana's island estate, Lanka. En route, he has also had quite a few bouts of personal shapeshifting, where Hanuman alters his size to be as small as a cat so that he can sneak through, and as large as a mountain to prove his divinity, because, you know, big things must be divine. Back in Lanka, as this adventure is happening, Sita has been refusing Ravana, who is desperately trying to court her. He is much more gentlemanly than Gilvethwe and Gwydion and does not try to take her by force. I am happy to say. So when Hanuman arrives, he sneaks into Sita's quarters knowing that he can't defeat Ravana just then and tries to persuade her to return with him. She refuses. She wants Rama to save her. Now, this is the point at which people start arguing over it. Some will say that at this point, Sita is just being snotty or rude. But it's actually likely that she doesn't want to be left alone in the woods with Hanuman. If she's going home with a man, she'd like it to be her husband. In any case, eventually Rama does show up and take Sita away. However, he suspects her of enjoying her time with Ravana. She offers to do a trial by fire. When she is not burnt to death, but rather saved from incineration by the gods... Rama comes to believe in her innocence. He couldn't just trust her word there. In any event, in time, even that is not enough. Sita returns to the palace with Rama, but the townspeople are whispering not very nice things that indicate that they think Rama is a pansy for allowing his unfaithful wife back into his home. So he banishes her into the forest, where she gives birth to his twin boys, who are then trained by a sacred master. Eventually, Rama finds out and is impressed with his offspring. He wants to see them. He wants to welcome them home. Not so much, however, with Sita. He'd like her to prove her innocence again. So she does. But this time, Sita does not ask to be spared if she is innocent. Rather, she asks that the earth rise up and consume her if she is innocent, so that she doesn't have to live with his hollow accusations anymore. And that is the end of Sita and the heartbreak and shame of Rama, who finally truly believes her. The Ramayana, while it contains many lessons, can be seen as an illustration of the god Vishnu incarnating as Rama in order to assist in our growth and development by illustrating the repercussions of trust, betrayal, and values. But what about us? How do we shapeshift for our own personal growth and development? I think it's both the simplest and the most difficult thing we can possibly do. We have to change. Somebody said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That quote is attributed to Albert Einstein, Mark Twain, and Benjamin Franklin, but there's no evidence that any of them said it. It was probably my next-door neighbor, the irritating one. Anyway, we shapeshift for our own growth and development by stretching our comfort zones, by taking small steps toward big dreams. When we think it's too late it's not. Dreams don't always look the same in the light. In fact, they never do. But when we take steps to make the impossible come true, it almost always does. Just perhaps not the impossible we had originally envisioned. Want to be a rock star? Learn to play an instrument? Yes, even if you're 87. Want to write a novel? Write something. Anything. Want to go back to college? Do a search online for programs you're interested in. Dreams are pointers in the direction we should move, not end-point destinations. We're happy when we follow our dreams, not necessarily when we catch them. Light is squelched when we try to hold it in our hands, but light's our way when we pursue it. Be bold, ship-shift, because when we can see ourselves clearly enough, we can subtract our reflection from our images of the world, and that's when we can start to see the truth. There's one more shapeshifter coming up. Shapeshifting for communal and cultural change. Plus, we've got to get to that ends justify the means thing I mentioned. Until then, author responsibly.